Welcome back to a second series of Leash Connects podcasts, where we meet more of the dedicated people who are there to support you and your community in the wonderful county of Leash. So my guests today are Orla Fagan and Marion Mulvaney. Orla is the service coordinator with Midlands Drug and Alcohol Treatment Support with Merchants Key Ireland. This project delivers a community-based drug and alcohol treatment support service for anyone over 18 and their families in the Longford Westmeath, Leash and Offaly area. This is a free, confidential and holistic service that works with all relevant agencies across the Midlands to ensure the best possible outcomes for its service users. And Marion is a nurse manager with the Community Alcohol and Drug Service, or CADS for short, for the Midlands region. Marion has worked in HIV, AIDS, infectious disease in London in the 90s, which led to time working in a medical unit in Long Bay Prison in Australia. This experience brought Marion to work in the area of addiction, where she has been working for the last 20 years. Guys, you are very, very welcome. So this is a subject that I'm really, really interested in, and I'm really grateful that you've come in today to chat about it. This is probably a conversation that's maybe not hard enough, I think. I've got a ton of questions that I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind. But I am interested in things like, why do some people become addicted and others don't? What are the sort of range of different things people can become addicted to, say within the alcohol, drugs sphere? Even things like, how do you even know that you're becoming addicted? Like, what are the telltale signs? How would I know it through my behaviour? How would I know it through my thoughts? How would I know it even through my feelings? Like, what are those telltale signs? They maybe talk a little bit around the help stuff. Asking for help is asking for help difficult, and if so, why? That's the type of area that I'd like to touch on. Marion, I'll maybe start with this one then. Like, why do some people become addicted and others don't? And I can imagine that's probably one of the most common questions that you get asked. Well, it's not one of the most common, but it is a very interesting area. The general consensus among the experts and professionals working within the area of addiction would say it's a biopsychosocial phenomenon, which means there's neurobiology, things going on in the brain, the psychological involvement. A lot of addiction brings a psychological dependence. And then there's the social aspect, which is your environment and your upbringing, your family, etc., You have to take all of those into consideration. It's not just one thing. In the old days, they would have viewed addiction in a moralistic way so that if you use drugs, then you should be punished. They've moved, thankfully, away from those types of approaches of seeing addiction. And they've realised, actually, there's a lot more to it than just people wanting to use drugs. Because of that, though, you'll still see the judgment and the stigma and the shame that's associated with addiction. Sometimes you hear people saying, like, I just have an addictive personality. Every single body has some sort of addiction to something. Coffee, chocolate, sugar. We all have it within us. But there are other things that come into play that would lead to some people not being addicted and others becoming addicted. Most people don't become addicted. And just on that, what you just said there, Anthony and Marion, in relation to when people say, oh, I have an addictive personality, that would come from the genetic model. You know, there's a couple of different models. Marion has mentioned a few of them there. Psychosocial, the disease model and addictive personality. Some people know their own limits in so far as if I have that slice of cake, I'll finish the whole thing. It's off that general kind of consensus that, you know, some people would say that, you know, oh, I have an addictive personality. If they indulge, there's the all or nothing concept. If they have one point, they'd have to have more. So it's easier to have none. 
Is that a self-discipline thing? There is a role for self-discipline, but there's also biology going on there. You wonder why some people go out and drink and they know when to stop. And then you see the people who just keep drinking and they'll still be standing the following morning. They'll be walking home at nine o'clock in the morning and they don't seem to be as sick (laughs) or as hung over as others. And you'd wonder, why is that? And that's down to, it's a genetic and it's a biology and it's basically down to your liver enzymes. Who becomes toxic and who doesn't? So I always become toxic, so I have the worst hangovers. But somebody else mightn't, and they get up and go drinking the following day. So this is like a tolerance then? It's a tolerance, yeah. But it's more than a tolerance. It is how your body metabolises alcohol. It comes down to your liver enzymes. So what does that mean? Tell me what that means. It means that some people will not have the same toxic effects in their body. So it's almost like your body instinctively knows when you've had enough, whereas somebody else won't have that same toxic effect and will continue to drink. Well, you hear sometimes that people, got I can't remember a thing from the night before, I don't remember how I got home. That's the point there. Marion is talking about as far as like their brain hasn't caught up with the amount of physical alcohol that the liver is processing, but the brain will have zero memory, but yet the body will continue to function. It's referred to as a blackout and where people fail to remember certain things and they have to ask their friend to wake up the next morning, they have to ask their friends, did I say anything to anyone last night? How did we get home? Do I owe anybody any money? Also known in some cases as a good night out. I was going to say that. <laughs> well, those were the days. <laughs> and you'll notice in people as they get older, their tolerance is a lot less and the hangovers are a lot worse. And that's because, unfortunately, we're getting older and ageing. So our function is not as good as it was when I was younger. And is it the same with drugs then to alcohol? Is it the same type of idea? You know, cannabis or cocaine or heroin? Every drug has a different effect on the body. It depends on the harm that each drug can bring about. Everybody develops a tolerance. What happens then is with the tolerance, you are stumbling into addiction. You have what we call the craving or the compulsion to use. Is there hidden addictions? Yes. And this is something in particular now that's coming to the forefront because of the pandemic. It's been kind of forced out there. And that would be over-the-counter medications and what we say illicit use or the use of prescribed drugs in a negative way. The use of prescribed drugs in a way that they're not intended for. So when I say over-the-counter medications, I'm talking about any medications that have codeine in them, which is the likes of Salpidol, Salpidine, Nurofen Plus, Codeine Linctus, which is a cough bottle. Then you also have prescribed codeine-based drugs as well, such as Tramadol. And you also have drugs, they're called the gabapentinoids. And one of those would be Lyrica, which is a prescribed drug. But in recent years, the prescribing of this drug has gone through the roof as it's a very good drug for the control of neurological pain. And it's also used for the treatment of depression and anxiety. But it has huge abuse. Let's go to Neurofen Plus thing, because to me, Neurofen Plus is something that I would take if I spent all day out in the garden and maybe didn't warm up properly. (laughs) (laughs) And the next day, I I can hardly walk. Okay, so I'd see Neurofen Plus. So Neurofen Plus is something that I could become addicted to. What you're just describing there is a really good example of, let's just say you have your stiff aches, pains, you know, in your body from out gardening. Pain management is a, we would hear a lot of talk about, you know, the reason they end up on some of the more intense drugs there, like Marion just mentioned, tramadol or... You've got the, Oxycontin, the Oxycontin, yeah, that's a real, you'd hear a lot about it from America. 
but it's definitely making its way over here now. And back pain, chronic pain management. They started off taking these specific drugs for pain management and now they're dependent on them. To get back to your question there, I suppose around, you know, so you have aches and pains in your body and you want to relieve the pain. So Neurofen Plus has codeine in it, which is an opiate derivative. It has addictive qualities. How do you know you're dependent on it, though, from an addiction perspective? Because if it's easing the pain and when you stop taking it, the pain emerges again. Well, there's a couple of aspects to that. Ultimately, really, addiction is about feeling, right? Why anybody would take any substance, be it alcohol or a drug or even a behavioural addiction, it makes the person feel better for whatever reason. Most of the time, a lot of the reason people continue to go back to that substance or that behaviour, be it gambling, is because they know they're going to get a good feeling from this substance. So the more you take off this substance, the more you are going to feel that good feeling. You will know when you're developing an addiction for it. There's four particular characteristics, really. You know, they're called the four C's. Compulsivity, cravings, the consequences, control. If you've lost control over, you know, if there's a packet in your FM plus there and you have to take it, you feel that you have to take it, you've lost control. So it's your body is either craving it and the consequences, you know, addictions cause a lot of pain within families. When a person has to get a substance by hook or by crook, by whatever means, the last penny may be involved in that bottle of vodka or that bottle of wine or bag of heroin, whatever it is. Gambling as well, you know, that, you know, if they only have five euro left and the belief will be they have a better chance of making more money out of spending it on the bookies. When you've lost that control, there's cravings as well. So if you're craving alcohol, that's biological. That's your body's way of saying, I need this substance, be it alcohol, heroin, cannabis, cocaine, whatever it is. Could that be even describing, you know, the Friday feeling? I think it's important to say that not everybody gets addicted. It's about 10% of the population will get into trouble. It can be frightening to hear things like this, but I think it's important to remember that, say, when you're talking about pain control, that most people actually that require those heavy hitters like the morphine-based, codeine-based medication are okay. They're all right. They're okay to come off them under medical supervision. I've actually gone off the topic here. You're talking about a Friday feeling. (laughs) So the, the, the craving piece there, though, like having that craving on a Friday even, right? Weekends coming up. No. Oh, you're looking forward to a few cans uh, of beer yeah, or a few like, bottles of beer. But or there's a difference. There is a difference in so far as right. Okay, so you hit that five o'clock rocks around on a Friday evening and you know, right, that's it. Work is done for the week. It's about enjoyment, spending time with your family, your friends. And it's just the release of the stresses and strains from during the week. You don't have to get up for work. You may have to go out and go to the bog at an even earlier time than you'd have to get up for work, but you still feel good that the working week is over and you're getting to spend your time at the weekend then as your own bit with family or friends. Five o'clock on a Friday evening or five o'clock now, maybe any evening can be considered wine o'clock for a lot of people. We are actually seeing, you know, a huge surge in like female presentations for alcohol dependency. And again, that's for a myriad of different reasons. But that Friday feeling is just like a release. Not everybody has to have a drink on a Friday evening to feel good about it being five o'clock on a Friday evening. Not everybody would have to take a drug to feel good about it being five o'clock on a Friday evening. And not everybody would have to go gambling. Does that answer your question? Is there a difference between dependency and addiction? No, they're interchangeable terms. Yeah, I mean, it's a normal human response for somebody who's on medication prescribed that they have what you call a dependency. But addiction has that stigma associated with it. But also addiction is a definition set down by 
the right group of psychiatrists. It's called the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. So it is a diagnosis, or they call it substance misuse disorder. But addiction has a stigma attached to it. So it's saying dependence is kind of more socially acceptable, but they're interchangeable. Okay, so they mean the same thing. They mean the same, well, yeah, and substance misuse as well. well addiction is the use of medications that are for something else, but they're being used in a different way. And that way is feelings. It is, yeah. It's to do with, again, how do you know you're addicted? What Orla was discussing. But say in the likes of over-the-counter medications or prescribed medications, it can happen very quickly. It can happen within a few days. Really? Yes. But everybody is different. So there are risk factors involved in. You could have 10 people lined up there and they could all go off and try cocaine at a festival or whatever. That does not mean that 10 people are going to get addicted, but the chances are maybe one, one or, or two. two. And the reason for that then is there are risk factors involved. We don't know what the person may have grown up in. There could be environmental factors that that person may have grown up in that would lead them to wish to continue taking cocaine. There could be psychosocial risk factors, your environmental, your psychosocial, other risk factors, your genetic makeup can be a risk factor as well. And then as well as that, you have mental health issues come into play there significantly as well, because you have undiagnosed disorders such as ADHD, say in adolescents. Adolescents in themselves will experiment. It's part of growing up. But what happens is they start to self-medicate because they start to feel better. That in itself, you're getting into a perpetual cycle of taking a drug to feel better. It's taking a drug to actually feel normal, to belong. There was a lady once said to me before, somebody in recovery from alcohol, and she said she had her first drink when she was 16. It's just the feeling that she got from her first drink was just overwhelming. She says, if you can imagine how you feel, which is, say, calm, relaxed, that was the first time she ever felt a feeling of calm and relaxed. She says, up until then, she was always anxious, head busy, couldn't sit still, couldn't sleep. A lot of activity in the brain, but the first drink, yeah. first vodka. And it's gas, like say from you know, generationally and, you know, different things. Like, you know, from growing up, when you first start to go out, you know, you'd be all nervous in case you'd hear guys saying that, oh, I didn't have the courage to ask that girl out. And I had a few drinks and, you know, what we'd all generally know as Dutch courage. Alcohol is a stimulant, but it's also a depressant. So you know, initially, the first hour or so that you consume alcohol, you're feeling, you're feeling a bit... There's feeling a, good. You're, you're feeling <laughs> like... You're, you know, you've you know there's something different about you, and then obviously you know the more alcohol you consume, then the more it's going to have the opposite effect, which is the depressant effect, which people most normally experience the following day. Yeah, you're disinhibited, and alcohol and drugs do that in different ways, and that's where the Dutch courage comes in. And then some people really like that and will continue with it, whereas other people know when to stop. And then that's the risk I've heard myself say several times, especially with people that have lost their job. Sometimes my work would have brought me into what's called job clubs. They've lost their job and you know they may have been working in a certain industry for about 20 years and the industry closed down. So they're encouraged to go to this job club, which is like a four-week course, full-time four-week course to help get people job ready. I've often heard myself say, if you're going through a tough time, go through it sober. Because alcohol can amplify things and make things much worse. Also, I think you need a sort of a clear head when you're going through something quite challenging. Yeah, like Orla said, it is a depressant. There's no getting away from that. And the use of drugs in their own ways, say for the likes of cocaine. Like cocaine doesn't have a physical, you don't have a physical dependence to cocaine. You have a psychological dependence. And one of the worst things about cocaine is the mental health effects. It'll make life for some just near enough to not worth living. The downer people experience. 
when they're not using cocaine. And that's why it's so frequently used, especially with alcohol then, because to use alcohol and cocaine together, you'd feel like you're on top of the world. Which has a byproduct when you use alcohol and cocaine, when you're mixing them, when you're using them. And some people will tell you, well, the reason I take cocaine when I'm out is because I can drink more. But there's the byproduct from alcohol and cocaine combined, which is called cocoethanol. And that has a very, very toxic effect on the body. If somebody develops a dependency on cocaine, cocaine is a pretty pricey drug. So then you're kind of, you can go down the whole route of where drug debt becomes apparent. You know, the individual trying to hide it from their families. You know, it has a huge huge knock-on effect and drug debts can reach you know pretty significant amounts then you have the individual trying to hide that and trying to keep it from their family and leads down to all sorts of other possible complications is drug use see the likes of cocaine like is that popular very extremely it's available everywhere it's available in every town and rural community it's everywhere And everybody knows somebody that will get you some cocaine wherever it comes from. And the purity is quite surprising. It's like about 65%, 75% purity. Purity of street cocaine now is is actually, it's much purer now than it was. And cocaine, it's one of those drugs. It's like there isn't so much of a stigma associated with the likes of cocaine as there will be with maybe heroin. It's across the entire gamut of society from, you name it, from every profession, right, from the top right down. From what age, like, are you talking, what age groups are starting? Ah, students, college students particularly. You would see people under 18 for sure with, you know, ketamine, cocaine. It's a scene in Europe. It's a scene across the world. It's a scene in Ireland. And I think one of the saddest things about it is, and I heard this story only recently, is that especially for young lads, that it's now got to the stage where if they go out for a few pints, God be with the days. <laughs> but, they, you know, when you go out for a few pints that they feel like they're not having a good time unless there's a couple of lines of coke included. So if they don't have coke, then they actually get themselves into a state of agitation and it's like they'll go around asking, do you have some coke on you? Like, you know, so they associate having a few pints now with a bag of coke. Like, when do we get to that? And it's the acceptance of it as well. We would come across situations where maybe family members, because there's a huge part of our service that is family support because of the effect that it has on families, where family members would be saying, oh, I found this bag of white powder in my son or my daughter's wallet. When I questioned them about this, they were like, sure, it's cocaine. It's the acceptance of it. it. The attitude has changed towards cocaine. It's like, yeah, I'm sure everybody's doing it. You know, it is definitely it's available. It's across all professions and, you know, college students and there isn't a profession, I would say, that is immune from uh, not experiencing and, and cocaine. The, the gender's the same? The studies have shown that women would tend to use more, but I think it's equal, especially in the... Women the would tend to use more cocaine for different reasons. reasons yeah. uh, cocaine can be associated with weight loss because it can depress your appetite. So if you're heading out for a few drinks and to avoid that burger and chips on the way home, you know, cocaine is definitely an appetite suppressant. So women will be known and have, you know, spoken about taking it for that reason, for the weight loss aspect. I can't be specific about cocaine in general. I just know, say, from our own experience that, you know, across alcohol and all other drugs, we'd have a ratio of male to female, two to one. Is it difficult for people to come to services like yours, like to ask for help? Say if you're dealing with the likes of the -the over-the-counter medications and the illicit use of the likes of benzodiazepines, the painkillers, the lyricas, those individuals don't see themselves as potential service users of the likes of the Community Alcohol and Drug Service. They don't see themselves as addicts. 
the point of contact they would go to would be their GP or say the likes of support organisations around drug use. They see the likes of the service we provide. It's opiate substitution treatment, which is methadone or suboxone, especially the methadone. They see that as a very dirty sort of drug and that they wouldn't associate themselves with that. Whereas the choice of treatment for heavy codeine addiction is a drug called suboxone, which is what we provide also. And it works really well. So that would be a kind of a barrier to stopping them coming to our service. But recent times have shown us that with the restrictions and travel and whatnot, that people are actually coming forward now for help because it's got to the stage where other things have come into play the consequences of their addiction. So we actually have seen an increase of referrals from GPs to our service. The positive outcomes of the recent times is that we've changed the way we work. So we can do telephone consultations and telemedicine. So that's made a big difference in people coming forward because, again, there is that aspect they don't see themselves as addicts, but also in themselves they feel a sense of shame and guilt about where they've ended up. Like what Marion is saying there is it's like there's a hierarchy among substance dependence. Somebody who would have a cocaine addiction would not see themselves along the same lines as somebody with a heroin addiction. By the same manner, somebody with a gambling addiction wouldn't see themselves the same as somebody with a heroin addiction. People who take steroids or abuse steroids, they wouldn't see themselves as somebody with an addiction. So there is a hierarchy. The stigma has been reduced. It's not gone away, but it has been reduced, you know, and people presenting and feeling comfortable in presenting. A lot of the times, you know, the first port of call would be a phone call to anybody, a number they get online. to be very tentative, you know, is this confidential and who could possibly find out about this? And for various different reasons, people are reluctant, but they're also very aware of their own privacy. And that's perfectly fine. You try to reassure them as best possible and then get them, you know, get them linked in with the most relevant service, be it ourselves or CAD or whatever treatment really is most required by that specific person because everybody's different and everybody's needs are different. So, Is the biggest challenge, in your view, the person owning up to the addiction? You know, acknowledging that they have one? Yes. I think if you genuinely want to progress in treatment and recovery, you have to be honest with yourself. And a lot of people struggle with that. They're in denial and... I find anyway, the years I've been at it, you'll only actually make genuine progress when they actually admit to themselves that there is a problem, that there is an addiction. And then when you don't have that resistance, things flow in a much easier way. Because at the end of the day, when somebody comes forward looking for help, they're doing it voluntarily. We're a voluntary service and so is Merchants Key. It's a free service. You'd be surprised the amount of people that ask you, how much is this service? And it's like, this is a free service provided by the HSE. When they get to that stage, they're asking for help. That's significant. It shows motivation. What is this happening in their lives that bring them to that point, though? There could be a couple of different reasons. There could be family. They've just reached their, what's colloquially referred to as the bottom of the barrel. And that is a term that's used, you know, where they can, I can't do this anymore. I actually can't live like this anymore. And they put their hand up for help. And it's part of the compulsivity as well. When somebody puts their hand up for help, you really do want to capture them at that particular time. They don't want to hear, OK, well, we'll take your details and we put you on a list now. And, you know, you get a call in a couple of weeks or months or whatever. You capture them as best possible. And I know ourselves, they've merchants key. And like when somebody does make a call, they will receive 
receive an assessment within three days and it's usually within one day. That is the time to capture the person is when they put their hand up for help. Now, when you get the person engaged and they explain everything and you do your assessment and you just see what help out there be. It could be residential, it could be community-based detox. There's lots of different types of treatment depending on the type of dependency. I think it's also important to remember that treatment is not just a pill for every ill. Treatment involves all of the psychosocial supports. It's all the talking, it's the key working, one-to-one, group therapy. And the, and you can be in treatment as an outpatient. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go into a residential placement to get treatment. You're getting treatment in the community. And a lot of people get confused with that, especially families. They're like, get them into treatment. But you're like, they are in treatment. They've started to As soon as they've engaged with the likes of ourselves yeah. or the HIC or CADS or, you know, they are engaged in treatment, even if it is preparing, if it it is a case that somebody requires residential treatment, which is not always the case. And it's not a one hat fits all. There's many different types of therapy and treatment for people with a dependency. If it is assessed and residential treatment is required for an individual, there's a process to get into residential treatment. It could take up to three months. You know, there's certain criteria that has to be met in order for different treatment facilities or residential treatment facilities to accept that. So that could be a three-month process of helping the person harm reduction, getting them prepared for residential treatment. And harm reduction is, for people who don't understand the lingo, is a reduction in harm. And both our organisations, we like to work with people in ways of reducing harm because the reality is for some people who are alcohol dependent, they're never going to stop drinking. So what you try and do is reduce the harm, reduce the amount that they're drinking, keep them in that kind of stage where they're living some sort of quality of life. You meet the person where they're they are at. at. Yeah. So when they present, if they're drinking, for example, six cans of cider and a bottle of wine a day, Okay, so harm reduction would be, okay, you can't say, right, stop drinking. That's just not going to work. So you say, right, okay, how about now, by the time, let's just say, you know, I'll check in with you again now in two days' time. Can you see if you could possibly reduce that to maybe four cans a day on your bottle of wine? And then it's a process. Now, it doesn't happen overnight and it can take weeks, months. All the while, you are reducing the harm to the individual. And when you're reducing the harm to the individual, you're also reducing the harm to the communities that they live in, you know, not just for alcohol, but where there would be open drug use, say, and, you know, discarded needles and stuff like that. So when you're reducing the harm, you know, we provide a needle exchange service, you provide clean needles to the service user. We also give them bins, which they will return their used works to us in and we dispose of them safely rather than them using in, you know, isolated areas and just discarding needles, you know, kind of at the back of sheds or off route places that they may meet up with their buddies. So it's reducing the harm to the individuals plus reducing the harm to the communities. Is it a long journey? How long is a piece of string? Everyone, yeah, it's different. The funny thing about it is with professionals working in this area, not everyone agrees with the harm reduction approach. It's worldwide. It's adopted in a lot of countries that the reality is you have to do something to reduce the harm. Nowadays, you're handing out the crackpots. And not everybody is in agreement with that. Crackpipes. Not everybody's in agreement with that. I've read, said that it's encouraging people to smoke crack. But they'd smoke it anyway. They'd make their own crackpot. Say if they're not using the correct equipment or, you know, safe equipment, then they're doing more harm to themselves, which then they're more likely to present at your A&Es with, you know, other issues as a consequence of sharing dirty dirty needles. needles. And, you know, harm reduction has definitely, yes, absolutely not everybody agrees with it, but it has huge benefits, again, to the individual. Social and health benefits. And to the communities. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I mean, as you're saying there, is it a long road? Yes, it is. And it's different for everyone. And I think the realisation now is that addiction is a chronic, long path for people and everyone's different. So it's actually seeing the public as individuals that you just can't. One treatment does not fit everyone. Everyone's different and their needs are different and complex and individual. That's a nice change to see in comparison to the old days where even the way people were spoken to, giving out, you can't do that. Nowadays, you'd encourage people to talk to the person and see where they're at in their lives. And that's a huge benefit because when you meet the person where they're at, right, you're talking to the person in their language, you're listening to them and it's active listening. You try and remove any anxieties they would have around seeking help. When you have a successful relationship with one person, say, they are likely to discuss you and recommend to their colleagues or their friends or whoever they use with, look at, I'm seeing whoever it is, a drug and alcohol worker from Leash, Offaly, Longford, Westmeath, wherever it is. And they're really good. They're really understanding. They made me feel really at ease. And this is what they are now doing for me. I recommend. So the self-referrals that come from that, from the basis of the relationship that they would have built, you know, the relationship really is key for the service user. With Is that the same then within a family relationship where a 20-year-old son has developed a drug problem? You know, what type of role can a mum or a dad or even siblings play in that if the 20-year-old is living at home, they will have noticed things, you know, happening to allow them to form this decision. And a change in the person, the 20-year-old's behaviour, a change in their attitude, a change, you know, maybe money's going missing. And there'd be, you know, lots of different reasons as to why their mom or a family member or sibling will have said, right, OK, they will... At this point, maybe they will confront the 20-year-old, possibly be in a confrontational manner, and then that causes a row. And then, you know, this can go on, this can and most likely will have gone on for quite a while before the family member will seek help and say, look it. And that's when they'll go online, they'll get the phone numbers for our service. And that's when they reach out and say, look it, you know, my son is, or my daughter, this is what's happening. They're not getting out of bed. They're doing coke all night. I'm at my wit's end. What can I do? How can I get him to go for help? Or how can I get her to go for help? That's when we would link the person in with our family support specialist because it's a huge element of the service that we provide because the family members need as much help in dealing with what's happening within their family dynamic. The 20-year-old son, though, he needs to recognise himself that he yes. may have a problem. Yes. Yeah, but you can't force It's like you can't bring the horse to water. Absolutely. So all you can do really is encourage, encourage your son or your daughter to seek help. Here is the number of the drug and alcohol worker for this area. Have a very human kind of compassionate chat with your son or your daughter. Let them know that they are being supported in whatever way. This is the help that's out there. It is completely private, confidential and about encouraging. And that can be quite difficult to do if the behaviour is causing problems within the home. Yeah, and I mean, that's where the tensions arise is usually between the parents and the young person. And I think education does have a role to play. Even in this day and age with social media, you'd be surprised how many young people and people in general are not very well educated around the effects of drugs. But yet so you can buy lots of drugs on Instagram or various other social media channels yeah. and the dark net. But, you know, there's no hiding from where you can purchase drugs. Early intervention really is both for the family and the 20 year old. So the sooner you can get the person to present for help. 
early intervention is key. I think if the young person is involved with, say, sports or a hobby of theirs, say, for example, say in a GEA club, I'm not picking on the GEA, but I'm just using it as an example. There might be somebody in that club that they look up to, a coach, and that coach might be worried about what they're seeing. And if that coach feels, say, they've gone to a talk maybe on a night and they feel like, Jesus, you know, alarm bells ringing here. Even a kind word, if they just said to him, look, at, I'm just worried about you. You know, you seem down in yourself. You're withdrawn, maybe. Is there something going on? And you'd be surprised that kind word and that compassion can make such a difference to somebody opening up because kindness, it really does work. And I see that with the clients I work with. Some of them will come in fiercely aggressive or whatever. If you just treat them with kindness and compassion, you'll see things change. You'll see them turn and they know they're in a safe place and they know they can trust you. And I think that's key. I think with parents, they're so close to it that there's such an emotional investment in their child, you know, the love and everything else that the child in themselves or the adolescent or the young adult will rebel against it. But if they have a trusted adult or somebody older in their environment that may be listening to this podcast, you just don't know, that's where you might find an opening. Yeah, and it's that safe place to feel that you can discuss there. Number one is to present, be it a teacher or a club leader or whatever it is, you know, a work colleague, you know, just to, if you notice changes in a person's physical appearance or their behaviour or whatever and you suspect something, without even mentioning, you know, is everything, look, a buddy, I'm here for you if you need to chat or, you know, kind of, you know, here's a number of somebody who helped me or it's just letting somebody know that look at there's help out there and that is he it's removing the fear removing the anxiety once the person presents is you know that there is this safe place for them to open up discuss you know what's going on in their lives the substances they're using and the consequences they're having on their life their personal life their family life their professional life and on their friends colleagues because there's a consequence for all our actions that young 20-year-old, he may turn around or she may turn around and say, I don't have a problem. It's all in your head. OK, that's fine. But I'm always here if you need to talk to me, you know, please come and see me if there's anything bothering you at all. And I say that a lot to a lot of people and you'll always find that you'll have them coming back to you. I think for parents, there's a huge sense of relief when services do step in. That's, of course, if the young person wants help. And that they're removed from it and the family therapy plays a a great part in that as well. As I was saying about the relationship between parent and child, there is a thing called enabling because a mother, father will love that child or young adult and they will do whatever they can for them. But if a young person is in the throes of addiction or anyone is in the throes of addiction, they will do whatever they can to sustain themselves and keep themselves feeling normal. There's always a game playing going on. When parents can step away from that and get some interventions themselves, there is a great sense of relief because services have stepped in. And I think for the likes of your 20-year-old, parents would actually approach their GPs. It does happen. And then GPs who will make referrals into our service or to Merchants Key. And the young person might not turn up. I'm always like, follow through, keep at it. Because we did have someone who was very chaotic, a young girl, very chaotic. The Gardaí were concerned and she finally came and we asked her, why is it that you came? And she goes, because you never gave up on me. That in itself, that's again, it goes back to the kindness and compassion that you can show a person. 
What's really, really, really important to get out there is like we are non-judgmental service. And when Marion was talking about there, you know, there's a huge sense of relief when people kind of, you know, when services step in, that can also spark fear into other people. You know, say we'd have people who are community-based drug and alcohol treatment support service, but people may be afraid they'd be more reluctant to approach the HSE for happy because they think, okay, well, my children will be taken off me or they're a state agency and they'll have to inform. Whereas they would look at the community-based agency saying, kind of, oh, well, they're less likely. They'd feel more comfortable kind of where there's no uniforms and the distinctions between state and voluntary or statutory and voluntary. Well, look, we're all mandated under Children's First and, you know, the various protecting vulnerable adults. So there's just less fear. And that is really, really important. It's about making the person feel comfortable so that they will present for help. When they do present for help, it's encouraging them to keep them engaged, that we can help them overall. That may involve us linking them in with maybe 10 other services. It's to keep them engaged, improve the positive outcome for the individual concerned. Guys, thank you so much for coming in to chat today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to your next podcast. Until then, Sloan Gufoyle.